I ask that you join me in your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat or um, seat in front or behind you, and turn to John, excuse me, Acts chapter 1. We've been in Acts chapter 1 for a while, haven't we? I feel like this has become a theme. Acts chapter 1. Before we get started, let's go ahead and take a moment to pray. Father, as we approach your preaching, the preaching of the word this morning that you have ordained, that you have commanded that we do, Father, I pray that we would uh, present your word in such a manner that is honoring to you, that is glorifying to you. Lord, help me to speak your word clearly and exactly as you would have me preach, uh, and help our congregation also to listen as they hear your word preached. Lord, pierce our hearts transform our minds. May we be obedient to the living water that we can get from your word by the power of the Spirit. Father, I would like to lift up uh, David Carnes and his church as they have had some major flooding that flooded their whole uh, church building this week. They came in on Wednesday and found uh, mud all over the floor, and so they had to scramble to find a new location for their worship. Uh, so, Father, I pray for them as they have um, all these various activities uh, in, in order to be able to uh, worship you as a, as a church family. So Lord, we pray for them and their transition. Lord, we thank you for Christ Community Church for opening up uh, their building for them to use. Uh, Lord, what a, a blessing it is to see gospel networking uh, in, our, in our city and in our town. So Father, we ask that your, your word would be preached and that we would be obedient to your will. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Unprecedented times. You guys remember that two years ago? That was, due to unprecedented times, we will no longer be giving you this. We'll no longer let you be in the lobby of the restaurant. We'll no longer come service your house. Unprecedented times. In fact, you may be getting flashbacks to the early part of what we were calling the pandemic at the time. Unprecedented times leads to unprecedented measures, right? And we had all these things that we had to do, all these hoops that we had to jump through. And it's funny because the apostles and early followers of Jesus were living in unprecedented times, truly unprecedented times. The, earth, the, uh, the apostles had never seen or heard anything like this Jesus Christ, this Jesus who died on the cross and then was resurrected. And then they saw this man that they watched die, come back and share stuff with them. And as we look at the book of Acts, we see the continuing story of Jesus in the early church. And they had this thing that they were supposed to do. Does everybody remember from last week? They were to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. They were ordered, they were commanded, they were uh, directed to wait for the Holy Spirit because they had not already received it. So today, I think more than ever, than any other time in, in American history, I think we are living in times that are similar to that of the early apostles and the disciples. I think in America, don't, don't mishear me now, because I think that there's other countries that are suffering in large part. But in the United States, we have enjoyed much prosperity 
due in large part to our Christian worldview and our Christian heritage. Yet over the last few decades, that has quickly been eroded, so much so that culture is becoming hostile to the biblical world, to Christian beliefs, and anyone that would hold to them. The more biblically, biblically, biblically we speak, the more biblically we speak, the more names you're going to be called. In fact, today, if you want to be a rebel, you have to do what your grandparents did. Raise a family. Go to church. Pray. Be obedient to the Lord and His commands. Now more than ever, in the United States, we need the examples of the apostles. That's why we're going through the book of Acts. Because we see the message that the apostles were to bring. We talked about that two weeks ago. That it was the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are to bring this message of the Son of God, fully God, fully man, killed for our sake. That our sins were given to Him and His righteousness was placed upon us as we believe. We have the means. The Holy Spirit is what empowers the mission of the church. And then, of course, we have the motivation. Why are we motivated to do this? Well, because the Lord reigns and the Lord will return. And we have all of this. And so as we are waiting in this period here, we see the apostles waiting. They have expectant belief. So let's go ahead and look at the expectant belief that they had. Verse 12 through 13 covers the expectant belief. Verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, or Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All of them went from the Mount of Olives where they just watched Christ ascend, right? And then the angels came to them, what are you doing looking up into the sky? You've got a mission to do. You've got work to do. And so the apostles obeyed Christ's command and returned to Jerusalem. They departed from the Mount of Olives, or we would even say the Bethany area. So you will understand this if you read the other Gospels. Some Gospels say that Jesus was around Bethany when this happened, and some say the Mount of Olives. And some people are like, oh, there's a contradiction. The Bible can't be true. There's a contradiction right there. But if you look at a map, Mount of Olives and Bethany are together. They're, they're joined. There's not really much difference. And so Mount of Olives is in the Bethany area. It's where we see Jesus going often to pray. We also see him give his Olivet Discourse, where he gives um, his his teachings on various areas. And the reason is, it's because it's a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, not too far from where they're staying. So what is a Sabbath day's journey? Well, it's about a two-thirds of a mile. So the, the, the Jews understood that you could only travel so far on the Sabbath. And once you went too far, then you're breaking the Sabbath because you're doing work. In fact, if you ever go to Israel you'll know on Sabbath time, Shabbat, that they have an automatic system in their elevator so that you don't have to push a button to go to the next floor. It automatically stops at every floor. 
And so they have one for us Gentiles that are marked regular elevator and a Shabbat elevator, right? So if you want to stop at every store in a, in a or not store, floor in a, hot, um, a hotel, you don't want to get in the Shabbat one unless you want to go to every single floor because it's automatically, because you're pushing a button, it's work. And so they took this very seriously. And the, and the, the, the early disciples understood the keeping of the Sabbath. And so it was only about two-thirds of a mile. And that's an easy and convenient way to measure distance, right? Oh, this is about a Sabbath day's journey. So that's why we're being, this is being explained here, because they're not too far from where they live in Jerusalem. And it says they were staying in an upper room, and then all the disciples are mentioned. Now, that you'll notice that there's some variations in the names, and that's to be expected, not because they were different men, but because they went by various names, right? Sometimes I call my son Cy, and sometimes I call him Silas. Sometimes I call Edward Ed, and sometimes I call him Edward, right? Or Eddie, or Sisai, or, right, we have all, or, or Charlotte sometimes is Sharshar, right? We have these little things, and Samuel is Sam Sam. Anyways, you guys get it, right? We cut it short, we double it up, and so we see that, and then the spelling variations is pretty common because mostly you're not writing out your name anyway. You're just saying, this is who I am, which is kind of an interesting note. If you ever look at, like, the... Um, the immigration logs, you'll notice how often names from Europe changed in spelling when they arrived in the United States. Um, and that's partly because sometimes it's a verbal, and we see the same thing in Scripture. So it's not a contradiction when you read these names of who these disciples are. And we see that the writer is trying to make it clear who each one is by giving them their nom de guerre, their war name, right? Simon the Zealot is mentioned. So we see that the disciples, they obey the command of Jesus to return to Jerusalem and to wait. So in unprecedented times, we must believe expectantly. Now we can speculate what they must have been thinking. Are we going to be the next ones executed? Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, the area where he was just killed on a cross. Are we going to go and die with him? Right? Why is Jesus asking us to return to Jerusalem? Should we go home? I mean, if you think about it, Jesus came, he died, he ascended, and then he said, go wait. But man, wouldn't it be more convenient to head home, spend some time with grandma? I mean, imagine what they're thinking. I mean, this is, this is kind of scary. This has never happened before. In fact, we don't even, we don't even see the prophecy being fulfilled exactly the way it's supposed to, right? Because they understood that this Messiah would reign on earth immediately. And yet, Jesus didn't do that. He departed. They know He promised this Holy Spirit, but now He's gone. How long will it be? How long do we have to wait? How long am I going to have to shell out money for a room in Jerusalem? How long do we have to wait? Yet, they obey. They return to where they were staying, and they believed enough to trust and follow Jesus' commands. So the apostles and the disciples would have been unworthy of their name if they had rejected Christ's command and did their own thing, wouldn't they? It's no accident that John writes later on in John 14, 15, quoting Jesus, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And then 2 John 6, 
This is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the command, as you have heard it from the beginning, that you walk in love. The apostles and the disciples, they show us that if we love Jesus, we will want to obey him. We will want to obey him. Some have said that you can be a Christian, but you don't have to obey. Others have said that you can, you must obey to be a Christian. Both of these are not quite right, are they? They're partly true, but they're not quite right. If we obey what Scripture teaches, we do it because we love the one who gave his life for us and knows what's best for us. Can you imagine if only half of the apostles decided to go back to Jerusalem? Who's going to get the gifting of the Holy Spirit, do you think? The ones that obeyed. We don't obey because we, if we don't obey, then it's because we don't really love him. But we don't obey to earn his love either. Do you see this, this, this distinction? Young people, I want you to get this distinction. People will confront you and say, your faith is all but rules. Anybody ever say that to you? Edward? Silas, it's fun when you're called out in church, right? Has anyone ever said, oh, your faith is nothing but rules. You just have to do this, do that, thou shalt not, thou shalt, all those rules. I hope you guys come to the place, you gals, come to the place where you can say, yes, the rule of love, because I am compelled by the love that I have for my Savior to obey. When you come to Christ, it is no longer, you must do this, but now I want to do this. I get to do this. There's a really clear distinction there, and I, and I hope you come to the place where you understand that distinction, where it's not, oh, I have to obey this because my mom and dad said so, but I get to because it's best for me. When you're a young child, you're not so worried about wrinkled clothing or dirty pants. But as you get older and you want to impress that boy or you want to impress that girl, you choose to put on non-wrinkled shirts, don't you? Not so stinky shirts. Because you are compelled by a different rule. right? The rule is no longer an external forced upon you rule. It is now an internal desire that has been changed. And as you become a Christian, your motivation to the rule of Christ because you love him and he loved you. And I think we should all evaluate our motivation. Am I trying to earn Christ's love by coming to church, by giving money to the church, by uh, serving the church? Or have I already gotten it, and out of my thankfulness and my joy and my, my happiness, I'm going to do these things? Examine our motivation. The whole section, though, accumulates in verse 14. Verse 14 is really a powerful accumulation, I guess I already said that, of what this passage is about. It says, they all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They prayed together constantly or consistently. All the disciples were there, and the women that followed Jesus. Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers Jesus had biological half-brothers, if you want to use that term. 
Uh, Mary had other children. I know some people are surprised, especially the Catholic Church. Remember how they thought that Jesus might have been insane earlier. If you remember that story, Jesus' brothers and his mother came to him to get him because they thought he might have been a little crazy. Right? His brothers didn't even believe him. And then and earlier in John, we see also he's at home, and they're like, well, why don't you do some miracles around here, Jesus? They're even challenging him because they didn't believe him. They're like, why don't you just show yourself? Do, a, do, a, do us a miracle. See what happens. Yet here, there's a change. They're here praying to the risen Lord. What would it take for you to believe that your brother or sister is deity? A lot. <laughs> Think about it. Right. It's, a, it's an amazing thought. What would it take for us to believe? Well, maybe dying and coming back to life? That would be a pretty convincing proof, right? And so we see that his brothers and his mother are fully convinced that Jesus is Lord, that he is God. In unprecedented times, we must pray expectantly. So even though they had Jesus' promise, they prayed. Did you notice that? So they didn't just sit around and say, well, we're just waiting on the promise. They prayed. Their prayer was unifying. It united the whole church together for the purpose of anticipation. You know, this says a lot about the early church's understanding of prayer. And where did they get this understanding of prayer? From Jesus. Because Jesus prayed often and regularly during his time on earth. Luke 5.16 says that, yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, need to pray? Does, do you think that he needs to give information to God the Father? Oh, Jesus, let, or, or God the Father, let me tell you about my day. God already knows. He has complete knowledge. So prayer is about more than asking for things or telling God things. But it's intimacy with the maker of the universe. So we are commanded to pray constantly, persistently, and even thankfully. So pray constantly. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says this. You'll never guess. Pray constantly. Persistently. Romans 12.12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. And thankfully. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Measure your prayer life to these criteria. Where do you fall? Are you praying constantly? Are you praying persistently? Even when the thing you're praying about doesn't happen the way you want it to. Are you praying thankfully? Are you giving thanks in all circumstances? I am convinced that the major or the majority of our emotional struggles would be relieved if we were regular in prayer. I'm convinced of it, mainly because of my own personal experience. The more time I spend in prayer, the less stress I feel. The more time I'm stressed, it's because I'm usually not praying as much as I should be. If you need help launching or revitalizing your prayer life, we have book resources for you. I have, in fact, I've got a whole bunch of books in, Ryan and I, um, free books. They're in the back. It's called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. Uh, 
please grab one on your way out. If you know someone who struggles in prayer, give it to them. This is a great way to begin to understand prayer, as we see in Scripture. Also, the women, they have a, a woman's prayer brunch quarterly, and I'm sure they would love to have you join them in the next lunch as they pray about the concerns of the church and the community. And guys, I'm going to be honest with you. We are in a spiritual battle. Our church is in the battle. It is in the fight. I don't know if you've noticed, but there has been a lot of chaos just in general in our church. Uh, people are suffering. We have joy um, as she is slowly passing away. Let's just be honest with that. Um, the struggle that Gary feels as he watches his wife. The struggles that we have with health in our own congregation. Many people are, are struggling with health. Uh, I'm thinking of Judy, who's not here right now. And we have Pam, who's going through cancer treatment. We have Maria, who just got out of the hospital for brain surgery. Right? There's a significant amount of physical ailments. But then we have rain and storms destroying our modular building. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have maybe even felt a heightened sense of tension with your spouse. Um, or even maybe conflict with other people. I think, I really do believe that we are struggling in this area because there is a spiritual battle that we are fighting. Sin issues, health issues, conflict issues. And our greatest weapon is prayer and to flee to, the, to Christ in faith. Prayer is running to God in faith. And I'm going to ask this. I'm going I'm to beg you to be praying for me. I don't know if you need to set an alarm Sunday morning or sometime during the week, but please be praying for me. Um, there is a lot that we as a family are fighting through just spiritually. Uh, and it's not anything to be alarmed about, but it's a regular, constant battle to be obedient to our Savior. And so be in prayer for me, be in prayer for your elders as we seek to be obedient to our Lord. And finally, we have the longest portion of our text. And this is expectant restoration, 15 through 26. We see in this passage, the apostles have to do something about Judas, the great villain of our text. Verse 15 says, In those days, so as they were being united in prayer, because prayer is unifying, along with all the women, there was a whole church service going on. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell Head first, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. That's a graphic image. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field is called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from, from, from us, <clears throat> excuse me, from among these, it was necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
So they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they, obey, or they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left, left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So this passage covers the, the need for a replacement. He said it's necessary in verse 22. In the middle of Peter's sermon, Luke adds a comment about how Judas dies. So it's kind of a confusing passage, isn't it? As you read through it, you're like, what in the world are you talking about here, Peter? Well, you have to recognize that there is a, a commentary in the middle of this message. So Peter stands up and he begins to preach a message. And then Luke, as he's recording it, decides to take a little short break and explain who Judas is. So what you'll notice is 15 through 17, we have Peter. And your Bibles will probably have quotation marks, which helps us understand that, that he is speaking. So 15 through 17 is Peter, and then 20 through 22 is Peter. He's continuing his speech. And we'll take each one in part. So Peter explains the plan of God in using Judas as the betrayer of Jesus. Why did God use Judas? That's what he's beginning to explain. So Peter says it was the plan and was foretold, and even though he was one of them in the sense that he saw all of Jesus' works, he was used by Satan to betray Jesus. Verse 16, he gives a very clear statement about the inspiration of Scripture. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the Scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The Old Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to us through his word. And that's what Peter is very clearly explaining. Then in verse 20, Peter quotes the Psalms. It says, Let his dwelling place or dwelling become desolate. Let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. So Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, 8. Seemingly odd choices. I don't know if you are up on your hermeneutics. Uh, but if you are, you would say, man, that was, sounds like proof texting. Sounds like Peter just went back and found some Old Testament things that sounded good and added it here. But there is a very intentional use of these passages. So Psalm 69 is a psalm about the enemies of God being destroyed in a plea for rescue. And then Psalm 109 is a prayer against an enemy. So his selection of these two verses while seemingly out of context, are startlingly applicable. Basing his argument on Scripture, Peter calls for the choosing of another apostle to replace the one that betrayed them. And what you'll notice here is that no other apostle was replaced upon their death. It's only Judas, and it's because of his apostasy, because he rebelled against Christ. No other apostle is chosen in the New Testament um, upon the death of another apostle. So when Peter died, they didn't go and find a new apostle to replace him. That's why there's only apostles that are called by Christ and they're not replaced. No other apostle was replaced. And there was a need for 12. 
12 apostles because Jesus taught that the 12 would rule over the 12 tribes of New Israel. The criteria then that Peter goes into is that they must be eyewitnesses. Look at the criteria here. So, 21, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, um, from among these it was necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. They had to be eyewitnesses. That is a criteria for the apostles. So, some may object to the, choo the choosing of an apostle, since Peter, is, or excuse me, since Paul is later called an apostle, and it even seems as if Matthias is never mentioned again. Some people say, oh, they were just presumptuous. They just decided on their own to bring in a new apostle, even though they were never commanded to have this apostle. But we don't hear much about Matthias or any of the other apostles in the New Testament either, do we? So that can't really be the criteria in which we determine this. So I believe that the 12 apostles to the Jews were exactly what was necessary. The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples kind of seem to match. Uh, that number sounds really applicable to me. And the foundation of the church is on the cornerstone of Jesus and then the foundation stones of the 12. So Jesus commissioned 12 initially for the purpose of this here. And so we, we might want to ask, did, G, did Peter have a conversation with Jesus about the need to call another? Right? He might have had some conversations. We don't know. We can probably speculate. Um, but it seems like in preparation for the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter recognizes the need for an established foundation of 12 to be ready. Now, some point to this and say that the church appoints apostles now. And I don't think that's a valid argument because the apostles had certain criteria that cannot now be replicated. Right? What was the criteria? They had to be with us since the baptism of John and the, or John baptizing Jesus, and then they had to have um, be eyewitnesses to the rest of the events. We cannot replicate that today. There are no more apostles. They ended with the New Testament. So here's another objection. Paul. Jesus called Paul uniquely himself. So the, the word apostle also contains a range of meanings to include the office of the apostle, but is also translated as one who is sent or a sent one. Or sent out. But honestly, there are no other apostles today because only Jesus Christ can call an apostle and he chose the one, ones listed in Scripture. The twelve and later Paul, as one untimely called, I believe that Paul was even recognized by the apostles as a, an apostle. In fact, he even says so. So we have the twelve and we have Paul. What does that do? with this modern-day idea of apostles. I think it crushes it. There aren't any other apostles today. So to sum up, Jesus commissioned these 12 and later called Paul because they had a, a, a specific task. The 12 apostles to the, the Jews had to go to the Jews to establish the church. And then Paul later 
was also to go to the Gentiles, right? He's an apostle to the Gentiles. And so the New Testament church is founded on these stones, this complete record as we see in Scripture. It's not a position that is passed down. Peter is not handing the keys to heaven and hell to the next pope. Then Luke begins to speak in 18 through 19. Let's look at what his comment is. In 18 it says, Now this man, talking about Judas, he didn't even want to use his name, acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. So he describes what happened to Judas. Now while this is fascinating, it is often called into question since there seems to be conflicting stories. Did you know that? It's a seemingly contradiction. Matthew 27, 5 through 8 covers the same material. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 5, talking about Judas. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and, and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, It is not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it is blood money. They conferred together and bought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called field of blood to this day. And so many people will say, well, this seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because here, Luke in Acts is saying that Judas bought a field, and then he fell head first, and his body bust open, and his intestines came out, which is very graphic, but for some reason, my boys enjoy these kind of stories, right? And so what we have here is this similarities, but also some distinctions. Now, I think it would be really easy to make these stories uh, intersect. It seems really simple. For example, Matthew wants to show Judas's guilt and shame for his action, right? And then the consequences. That's why it's very abbre uh, abbreviated. He threw the money into the temple and then ran off and killed himself. That's the language that is used. But in our passage, Judas acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. In Matthew, the chief priest took the silver and bought a field. Seems like a contradiction. But nothing in the text says that Judas bought the field himself. In fact, it could be easily be recognized that Judas' blood money acquired the field. So if I died and my children bought a park with my money, couldn't it say that that couldn't we say that that field that park was acquired by me now i wasn't the main agent in the purchase but it was my earnings that acquired that field and we see that with judas the second seeming contradiction is the way that judas died matthew says he hung himself and luke says he fell head first and the body burst open so really simple solutions. Who's to say that he didn't hang himself and then in the decompo decomposition of this event or in the event itself, the head broke off and the body burst open. Right? It really doesn't make too much distinction here. Uh, some say he killed himself on the edge of a cliff and part of the, the strangle it, you know, the, the, the dying of him uh, or the, the hanging himself, the rope broke, he fell down off the cliff and then bust into pieces. Essentially, it can, both can be brought into an agreement. Uh, we don't have to be alarmed when someone says, those stories contradict, because honestly, they really don't. The rest of the narratives agree 
There is now a field called Field of Blood as a result of Judas's actions. So, as Luke is writing this, there are still eyewitnesses to this event. And those eyewitnesses could easily go and research this for themselves and say, oh, look, there is a field of blood, and it's got its name because Judas died on it and it was later or and later used for foreigners. So then we go back to um, Peter and his message. And it says that they put up two men, Joseph, who has lots of pseudonyms, and Matthias. Now, just based off of Luke, he says that this guy named Joseph was also called Barsabbas and also called Justice. Now, he had a lot of names. Why would Luke highlight that? I mean, if somebody has a lot of names, he probably would probably be the next apostle, right? That sounds pretty cool. Yet, Matthias is chosen. They pray, they cast lots, and then they choose Matthias. Now, lot casting is a common Old Testament practice, yet we don't see that anymore in the New Testament as a means of decision-making. Why do you think that we use lots in this passage and then the church never again uses lots? Think about it for just a second. Holy Spirit hasn't come, right? Once the Holy Spirit comes, there's no need for any of this casting of lots, right? God's decisions are understood by the power of His Word and the Spirit. No longer do we have to use the means available to us. So that's why when we choose elders, we don't all get up here and, and cast and play cards or di uh, throw dice, okay? Uh, but it's through this praying. And so the Holy Spirit is... Um, going to be poured out in a special matter or manner, so we don't need to do that now. So the choosing of the apostle is not just a let's pick anybody who witnessed, but two men whose character stood out above the rest. So of all the people that followed Jesus around, they chose two. They were very particular in choosing their leaders. So in unprecedented times, we must be careful who we choose to lead us. We need to be careful who we choose to lead us. The apostles, led by Scripture, were careful to choose the right men for the job. They used common means available to them in decision-making, and they chose a replacement for Judas in preparation for this promised Holy Spirit. You know, it's common in a desperate situation to just pick and choose a person to fill the slot, isn't it? We just want to choose the next breathing body. We need a person, let's just pick so-and-so. But I think we see here careful evaluation and a choosing process. Character should always rule over competency every time when you're looking at church leadership. You may find a pastor that is very good at preaching, but if his character is deficient, it's very dangerous. And sometimes in our haste, we can sure make a mess of things, can't we? The strongest criteria for a leader, the essential even, should be one who knows Christ. Someone who has a relationship and is growing in Christ. All other things are secondary to this. I think you would be surprised to know how rare this is in some places. And even in the history of Christianity. Uh, when the reformers came on the scene, it was common that there were people that were not even saved being priests and pastors. The question that must be asked is, has the sins of this potential leader 
been forgiven by the blood of Christ? Has his sin been placed on Jesus and his righteousness then placed on him? Does he show the fruit in keeping with repentance? Is he trusting in Jesus or does he place his trust elsewhere? Asking those questions also means asking these questions of yourself. When choosing a leader, do you want to hold that person to a standard that is beyond even yourself? Do you know the living Christ? Have you asked this question to yourself? Do you know who the living Christ is? Have you been transformed by Him yourself? So when you pick a leader, examine yourself. In so-called unprecedented times, we must have expectant belief, expectant prayer, and expectant restoration. If we look to the future of the church in these United States, we must be a believing people, a praying people, and a well-led people. The disciples understood the importance of obedience to the word, prayer, and the power of the Spirit, which is what we're going to see next week as we see Pentecost unfold for these 120 followers, men and women of Jesus. 120 people flip the world upside down. And we have how many millions of professed believers? It's amazing. Consequently, we also have 120 YouTube subscribers. Can you imagine what would happen if every single one of them was filled by the Holy Spirit and transformed? The gospel couldn't be stopped. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask that this would be a time of reflection as we approach your word. Uh, as, we, as we depart from this place, Father, keep us safe. Protect us from the evil one. Lord, as we think about the consequences of, of not following you, and we see the life of Judas uh, vividly displayed, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that does not know you personally, that they would take the time this week to get to know you uh, through your word, that they would uh, not hesitate to reach out to know the living God. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us, your grace upon us. Uh, we are so undeserving of all that you pour out to us. Lord, protect us and keep us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.